Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hey, y'all. I'm Mary Payne Gilbert, and this is my podcast, Pain on the Pod. Today, I'm going to be chatting with the hosts of the podcast, The Fall Line. The Fall Line covers unsolved cold cases in the South and Southeast, but what is different about these cases is that you have probably never heard of any of them. This podcast covers cases that are not likely to receive significant media exposure, or in some cases, significant police investigation. Laura and Brooke, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, first tell me about how you two met and decided to start this podcast together. Tell me about your background. Sure. Well, we met about 22 years ago. Wow. <laughs> we, went, we went to college together at, uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. We went to a little Quaker school um, and had no idea that podcasts would ever exist at that time. But we, do- we both did radio at the school, and we remained friends ever since. And then we ended up in Atlanta together. We both had small children, so we had a lot of playdates going on. And around that time, I was really into podcasts. Brooke was more into procedurals, TV-type stuff. Yes. But I was teaching a class at Georgia State on unresolved mysteries, and that's where I encountered the case of the Millbrook twins. I actually first heard about them on Robin Warder's podcast. I believe you just had him on the show. I did. Oh, my gosh. He was so nice. Yes. He's the nicest person I have ever met. (laughs) Very, very sweet Canadian guy. He sure is. And I heard about their case, and it was in Augusta, you know, which is just about two hours from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in having my class research them. But when we really dug in, we found out there were only three news articles about them at the time. And all three of them were from 2013, and they'd gone missing in 1990. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was – and so I wanted to find out a little bit more about why and how that happened. And – we decided that doing a podcast might be a way to go about it. And because Brooke is a licensed therapist, she specializes in grief and trauma. I thought it would be important to bring her on because part of podcasting in this way uh, is talking to a lot of families. Yes. And I didn't feel like I had the toolkit available to do that in a way that was responsible and helpful and wouldn't re-traumatize people. So I asked her to do it and she joined up and the rest has kind of been a wild ride. Wow. You know, Brooke, when I hear you interview people, I always think like how hard that must be to be speaking with someone, not only about their loved one or their child that has, you know, been missing and has never been solved, but much less to sort of have to bring it all up again. But I really have thought when I've listened to it, like Brooke does a really calming job when she's talking. And now I know why, because you're a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Mary, it is. It is a very delicate thing to talk with someone about something so traumatic that happened to them all those years ago. Yes. Okay. Now that all makes sense. So Laura, you're a college professor and Brooke is a therapist. So the two of you have a lot of uh, brain power going on. 
Uh, on on good days, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, okay, well, this, it's coming together in my mind now. It makes sense. So you guys were literally together with a play date with your kids, and you started talking about this specific case, and that's how you decided to get started. And that was going to be my next question was, how did you decide on the Millbrook twins for season one? Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was teaching the class, I just lost my temper. Uh, I was so frustrated with the lack of material because I'm an archival researcher. I can find stuff. If it's there, I can find it. It wasn't there. So how did um, how did Robin Order have it on his podcast if there was so such little information there? He talked to Shantae, their sister. Um, uh, one of his listeners actually arranged for Shantae to talk to him. So he actually was able to get information from her, which was great. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, you know, it's it's interesting about the Millbrook twins, and this is for uh, my listeners who may not have heard about it. They were two teenage girls that were just, you know, they had, were going to get money from, I guess, I can't remember, was their uncle that was going to help them pay for their bus fare to go to school. And they were just, to me, it seems like just your regular, like, walking around the neighborhood, like, I got to walk 10 blocks this way, three blocks this way, kind of doing their thing. And then between point, you know, C and D, they disappear. And the police didn't look much into it. They just said um, they were runaways. And tell me what you make of it when the police said um, they had been found, when in fact they had not. It's sort of, uh, it's so hard to peel apart all the layers of that stuff because it seems that it was based on what we found out and from to the 2013 reports and some things we've heard. We haven't gotten a direct statement to us from the police on this. So this is just based on what we've read was that that idea of them being found was based on hearsay that someone may have told the investigator that they had been seen. And so he marked them as seen. That's wow. our, I mean, that's crazy. That's our best guess. We can't 100% say that's exactly what happened, but it seems to be the answer that keeps coming up. That and also that along the way, so the girls um, went missing that where they were 15. Is that, isn't that right? Yes. The, okay. So they were 15. So then somewhere along the way, three years later, the police tell the family that they're no longer going to look into them as being missing because they would have turned 18, ergo now they're adults and they can be missing. Yes, it was kind of a confusing process. So first, their um, police case file was closed. And then two years later, they were taken out of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children database. So their case was closed a year after they went missing. And three years after they went missing is when they were removed from the database. I mean... It really is mind-boggling, and I was thinking about this yesterday when I was, you know, writing down what I was going to talk to you about. I was thinking, you know, it just seems like really like I'm saying it, but it makes no sense. Like, how could you just say, oh, we heard somebody saw them, so we're going to say they're found. And then because they would have turned 18, so now we're not going to say that they're missing anymore, even though when they went missing they were 15. It just seems so... um convoluted and the thank god they had the family that would at least like periodically check in on the case even though they got no information so what you guys did was you looked at all these different theories one theory would be the father um but the serial killer theory that was going on 
tell tell me about the serial killer that was around at that time because to me that seems like the most logical theory. It's interesting because there were no theories when we started working on this. The family had their theories, of course, but there were no theories really on the internet or theories out there because there simply had been no coverage and no public information about the case. And really no investigation. Yeah. So do you feel like the serial killer theory is one of the better ones in your opinion? Well, it's interesting. We're the ones that kind of came upon that information. Um, Joseph Patrick Washington, who was the convicted rapist and alleged serial killer, and I call him alleged, they're certain he did it. He just simply died before he could be convicted of those crimes. Actually, he'd never been tied to their case. But when I was researching Augusta and I was looking at patterns of violence in their area specifically, which is a little area called Bethlehem, we realized that this man had been preying on women, often women who'd been walking down the street during the day, right around where they were, even close to the gas station where they were. And that's what made us begin to look at him a little more closely. And then we found out he lived quite close by. He actually lived really close to their father and several other people they knew. So I don't know that I can say what I think happened, but I think that that is a legitimate lead that should be pursued in the case. Absolutely. But, you know, it's so frustrating because even if they pin it down and they say, yes, how will it's it's almost like it would be great to have an answer, but it's like justice could have been served so long ago. And I know that for, for y'all, that's got to take a toll on you, right? Like you're over and over looking at these cases and you're just like banging your head against the wall. Like, why didn't anybody look into this? You know, that's where Laura um, thrives, actually. She finds a mystery and she wants to get to the bottom of it. And she feels like if she can do something about it, maybe there can be some change. It wouldn't go back and write the original wrong, but it would do some to move the case forward now. Yes. And so what is the update on what's happening now? Because there was something going on with the police that you guys were getting money for a reward and then you raised quite a bit of money and the police had said they would match it. And now it seems like for the last thing I heard, they kind of ghosted you and weren't matching it. So the family's understanding after they met with the police was that there was going to be a reward matching. Um, Richmond County says that they describe that matching sometimes happens but they didn't specifically say there was going to be matching. So it's kind of unclear there precisely what happened, but there is a $10,000 reward now. And our major focus for season one is we have a billboard up in Augusta that announces the reward. Many people there never know that they went missing in the first place. Wow. So there's a billboard and we've been crowdfunding it for a year in March actually to keep it up. Wow. Wow. I mean, you guys are just really like, you know, literally putting your money where your mouth is. That's that's amazing. So I was very um, touched by uh, Brooke's interviews with uh, Shantae as the sister and then the mom. Are you still in touch with them? Yes. Um, we became quite close with the family, so we have regular contact with them. That's great. And so a- as things progress, will you um, update on the podcast? Yeah, we actually have an update episode planned in November for all of our seasons. Oh, good. There's a lot of stuff we're working on that we can't quite talk about yet, but that we're really hopeful will be great 
for the case and for everything else. So we hope that we can tell everybody more then. Okay, that's cool. Okay, uh, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk about season two. Okay, I'm back with Laura and Brooke of The Fall Line. And now we're going to talk about season two of your podcast. So for my listeners, season two focuses on a teenage brother and sister, Monica and Michael, who disappeared. Um, Their parents, who were off and on again together, reported them as runaways, but no one actually thought they were runaways. Um, The story is very, very layered. There's a lot of family issues there, including uh, incest and, you know, abuse and the mom, you know, being controlled by the dad and all these things. And they obviously were not runaways. And I loved um, Brooke when you spoke with, uh, her name was Wanda, right? The sister of Jane. Yes. I can't imagine how she feels because she really was, I guess, the last person to see them before they walked away with their dad and then no one ever saw them again. Um, Are you still in contact with her? We're still in contact with the family. We don't speak to them quite as regularly as we speak to the family of the twins. Mm -hmm. Um, But that case was just devastating. Um, The family just wanted to know what happened. And in many ways, they felt like they knew, uh, but couldn't do anything about it. It was one of the most interesting interviews that Brooke ever did. Um, She drove down there by herself because I couldn't get off work. And she took a setup with uh, lab mics and everybody wanted to sit together. And as they were passed, they were passing around the mics and just remembering things that none of them had ever talked about together before. So you guys all got that live, um, that sort of group memory developing and it was a really singular experience to listen to it because you feel them finally kind of putting the story together yes and really what came out of it was that uh michael had been very close with his dad but then when he realized that what had been floating around the family was that the dad had molested monica had been true he sort of didn't believe it but then he witnessed it unfortunately the dad says he's moving to alabama and the their mom is separated from them but at, right after they go missing and they're last seen with their dad going towards his empty apartment then the mom gets back together with him and moves with him and they're still together now i mean i, I it's literally like i'm speechless like you can't even imagine as a mother it seems like she was on the right path to do the right thing to leave him, you know, and then they disappear. And what does he say? Like, oh, I got rid of the problem. So now you have to get back together with me. Yes, it was so um, it's such an incredible story, especially now that Michael and Monica's siblings are now parents themselves, uh, many of them mothers, and they love their mother. And they also wonder what they would do as a mother. It's a really gripping story. It really is, because like I said, there's there's so many layers to it, and it seems obvious that the dad did something, um, but, you know, sometimes the answer is n- not so obvious, but that's what it seems like, and there were so many other children involved, and like you're saying, and now those children have children, and they're probably really looking at it with fresh eyes, and how old would the How old would the parents be now? I mean, would they be in their 70s? I think in their 60s. Yeah, 60s. 60s. Okay. So, of course, in my mind, I'm like, there's still time to serve some justice on 
the dad. Um, it is your thought that they reported the children as runaways and never looked back? Or is your thought that, I don't know, I guess the whole thing of reporting them as runaways and that's why there was never any investigation, that's what blows my mind. Nobody looked into it, it because they were runaways. It's, yeah, well, they are lucky to have um, a police department now that does consider the case to be active. I've actually spoken to the officer that's assigned to the case, the detective. She's had some meetings with Sheila, their oldest sister, and she has a really positive feeling about what Brunswick's doing now, and I do too. Um, but I think that ultimately it's really hard to guess at the motivations, particularly of their mother, who seems to have been in a domestic abuse situation, how she interpreted the world and what stories she told herself to be okay is something that I think about a lot. Right. Because it's one thing if you're in a domestic abuse situation and you can't get out, but it's another thing if you know something horrible has happened to not one, but two of your children. You know, it's just, it's very hard to sort of wrap your brain around that. So is the case, is the case now considered a missing persons case or is it still considered that they're runaways? Um, it's now considered to be endangered missing, missing persons. Okay. And is that because of the podcast? Actually, no. Um, they were the GBI got involved and they've been listed as endangered missing, missing runaways, pretty much based completely on the work of their sister, Sheila. So we felt like our job with the podcast, because the police were doing their job, the GBI did their job, you know, in recent times. And so we felt like our job was to make the story a little bit more well-known and try and get people talking in Georgia and Alabama to see what stories might come up. Yes. And then here goes Brooke with her microphone and sits the family down and you get all sorts of information. Yeah. Wow. You guys are really doing an amazing job. And I love, love the podcast so much. So let's take a minute here and talk about season three. So... Season three, you decide to cover a new case in every episode. So when we come back from the break, I want you to tell me the difference between doing the podcast this way instead of one case per season. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. Okay, so we're back from the break, and I want to know... What is the difference for you guys as far as your workload to do one case per season or do one case per episode? It seems to me like it would be 10 times the work. It kind of depends. So with our third season, Grady Babies, we had one large case concept, but lots of cases that fit into it because there were seven babies that had been kidnapped from Grady Hospital, and we looked at each baby. So in that case, we were looking at separate cases, but it had that thematic connection and that cohesion between them. Right. And now we're working on Between the Lines. Uh, I think we are releasing episode five 
on Wednesday, the 1st of May. Yeah. And that's a little bit different because that is looking at a case with a smaller intertwined cases that have no relationship each episode. Um, I wouldn't say that it's more work. I would just say it's different work. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, as the primary researcher and as the writer, I really kind of enjoy not being in the headspace of a single case for six or eight or nine months sometimes because you, you always get emotionally invested but when you're hearing about kidnapped babies and writing about kidnapped babies and thinking about kidnapped babies for a year, that's just really devastating. Um, and you kind of don't get a break from thinking about that. So moving from take case to case can make us feel like perhaps we can have a positive impact in a lot of places without some of the hardness and some of the sadness that comes from focusing on a single case for a long time. Although we really do like to do those too. Yeah, it seems to me that so I season 3 was the Grady babies and then now we're in season 4 where you're talking you've had a few episodes about some um transgender people that are missing and I, just as a sidebar my daughter asked me today she's 16 and she's a murderino like me and she was asking me today who I was talking to on the podcast and I was telling her about you guys and she said oh so they just cover just cold cases kind of in the South. I said, no, really, they cover cases of things that wouldn't have been covered, you know, um, some, you know, African-American teenagers sort of in the 70s, 80s time frame, you know, where the maybe the police weren't looking into it as much or babies that disappeared from a hospital or transgender. And she was like, oh, she's like, well, they're really doing good work. And you should really, you know, I was like, yes, I know. I know. My daughter is uh very into it. So now you have a new listener with her. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> she, well, hey, it's completely clean. So you can have it her is. Listen. Yes, it is. She, um, but I was telling her about uh, the babies going missing from the hospital. And she's like, don't tell me anymore. That's terrible. I said, well, some of them are found, you know, and sometimes they find them right away. And, you know, some are, are still missing. And that's what's so devastating is. Well, I mean, there's 25 things about it that are devastating, but you know, the woman that was the woman that's hanging around the hospital and then went to the girl's house after she had the baby, and the brother fell asleep on the couch, and then the woman took the baby while she was in the shower. Yeah, horrible. Donna Green, horrible. Like it just, like you just, you know, as a mother, you remember that time of being so tired and being so grateful if somebody would watch the baby for 10 minutes so you could bathe. You know, mm-hmm. and as uh, that's me as a, you know, when I was in my 30s having children, I can't imagine if I was so young, you know. So those cases were really, really devastating. So of those Grady baby cases, how many of those babies were found and how many that you covered and then how many were still missing? So all but two were found okay. um, when they were taken. And there are two that are still missing. And one is Raymond Green. Right. And he would be 40. Wow. And the other is Tavish Sutton, and he would be in his mid-20s. Wow, 20 years apart, huh? Yeah, and the the interesting thing about these missing children cases, these babies specifically, is unlike in a lot of other missing persons cases, they are most likely alive. Yeah, totally. Maybe even in the same city that we're in now. Right, and they never know. And there was one um, episode you had where a woman had to sit down and tell her daughter that she had taken her and that she wasn't her child. And you hear that sometimes on the news, and you think, 
for that child, you know, my whole my whole life, you know, was a lie. I don't know. It's you know, I'm talking about it. I'm getting all worked up, and I'm thinking like it has to take sort of a little bit of a um, a psychic toll on the two of you, sort of to to work on it day in and day out. And also, I mean, I'm thinking of Brooke in addition to what you do for your regular job. Yeah, and actually, I'm not practicing at the moment. Okay. Um, I'm at home with my young child, but I am also pregnant. <gasps> so, wow. doing <laughs> yeah, doing this um, season while having young children is certainly very impactful. It is, and, and the pregnancy hormones are probably helping or not helping as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I um I interviewed the two girls that did the Broken Hearts podcast, and yeah. um, one of them was pregnant during the time when they were putting it out, and she was saying, you know, is Justine was pregnant during the time, and she was saying, you know, how hard that was for her to report report on this child abuse and they murdered their children, you know, while she had a child and was also pregnant, you know, it really does sort of. It hit home to you in a, probably a, a different way than it would at any other time in your life. It just it comes and goes. Like uh, for a case that we're working on right now, we we just had it come out last week. Actually, the Christmas Doe and Dennis yes. Doe, and they're both very small children. Uh, we both have four year olds, and it was just we were at the DeKalb Medical Examiner's office going through all the files for Dennis Doe, and I realized he wore the same shoe size that my son mm. wears, and for some reason. Of all the sad things we saw about their cases, and there were a lot, that was the thing that just sort of hit me in the gut in a way that the other stuff didn't quite penetrate as deeply, you know, to where I had to kind of like go home and be by myself because it's just so hard to think about because you put your child in those shoes. It, like literally, exactly. Yeah. Literally. It's interesting you say that because um, when the Sandy Hook um, in Newtown, Connecticut shootings happened, I believe the children were all like kindergarten, first grade. I think they were first grade. And my son at the time was in first grade, just right down the street in our little local school. And I would just sit and watch and watch. And my husband's like, this is not good for you, you know, to sit and just watch it. And I said, but they are our, it's my baby too. You know, I was like, I feel like it's the exact same because these children are just going right down the street to their cute little public school, just like my child is. And if I turn it off, then I'm not giving these parents the attention. They, they deserve my attention to listen to them talk about their child. And he's like, this is, this is too much. It was too, it was for him, he was like, this is too much. And he had to walk away from it. But for me, I felt like to, to show the respect, I had to really listen. And I will tell you that after that, I really stopped watching a lot of news because it really affected me so much just for what you're saying. Like I felt so connected with that. It was so devastating that I was like, I'm not going to be able to like function. You know, this is like Mm -hmm. too sad. It's too heavy. Um, So I think that, you know, for y'all to be doing it day in and day out, it's got to definitely got to take a toll on you. I think you made an important point there, though, that you felt that those stories needed to be heard. And I think that is what is our primary focus. And so when I'm deep in the research and I'm thinking about structuring it, that need to be heard part is what keeps me going and doesn't make it as sad as it might otherwise be. Because you're like, if I can put this together correctly, maybe people will listen to it. And then maybe someone will have an emotional connection to it. And I know for Brooke, she really feels a close connection when she gets to talk to families. Yeah. And as for me, 
once I do start talking to the families, these are just the strongest families I've ever seen. They come together and organize in ways that you can't believe. They do things without resources and make it happen. Um, so there are so many uplifting parts to these stories as well. Yes, it sounds like some of them will give you some inspiration to go on and want to really tell their stories. So to put them out there, because who knows, it could be solved, you know? Exactly. Oh, boy. Um, Okay, so at the end of my podcast, I always ask, what podcast do you listen to? And I'm hoping that you guys are going to tell me like some hilariously funny podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, we listen to a lot of different stuff. Um, and I have this fear of, of accidentally skipping a friend who we listen to, but I'll run through the list that okay. we made of some things that we like. And if I forget one, Brooke can add. Um, so I love this podcast will kill you. And not just because it's on our network. I listened to it far, be- far before that. It's a podcast that's actually about uh, disease. Yeah. And it's by two epidemiologists, and it's so interesting, and I love science suddenly. I never like science, but I love science because of that. But do you, do you feel uh, like so, all of a sudden now you have every disease known to man? Because I feel like I would take it on and be like, oh, my gosh, I knew I had that flesh-eating bacteria. I'll tell you, I wash my hands a okay. lot is what I do do. Uh, we love Southern Fried Crime. Oh, yes. Our friend Erica Kelly, you just had her on. I listened. That was a great I love interview. Her too. Yes. Don't Talk to Strangers, which is a long form from our friend Nina Instead. She's doing on the Oakland County Child yep. Killer. Um, I love Ologies. Have you ever heard of no, Ologies? No, what's this one? Oh, man, it's great. It's by Allie Ward, and it's a podcast about every ology that might exist. Paleontology, cosmology, mythology, and they're these super accessible science-y episodes that are funny and they're well-produced. And I find myself listening to things about, like, trees – or weird fish. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, suddenly I'm interested. And so I love that one. Wow. Okay. These are I, very brainy podcasts you guys are listening to. <laughs> um, well, okay. I also we, I have, I have some more, but I'm not going to also say that no, someone's like not brainy. <laughs> so there's, there's some comedy mix that I promise. Um, speaking of dark series in the dark. Yes. Is, is the gold standard. Uh, we all hope to be. I love Crime Writers On. No, I don't know that one. I, Oh, Crime Writers On is a review show. Um, it's fascinating. It started out as a serial review, and it's Rebecca Lavoie, Kevin Flynn, Laura Bricker, Toby Ball. Uh-huh. And they do some really great reviews of pretty much all the crime media that's out at any given oh. time. So it's a great way to keep up and find out, like, should I listen to that thing that's on the Apple carousel, or maybe should I take a nap? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Date with Dateline? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of scheduling um, them on my podcast. That's hilarious. Yes. I, I will tell you, they are the only podcast that I listen to the episodes over and over again. Because they're so funny. They are so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Moms and Murder. Yes. We're good friends with them, too. Uh, Gone Cold from Texas. They're doing some really interesting work. I don't know if you've heard of I them. I have heard of Gone Cold um, more than once now. So I think that's one of those ones where it keeps popping up on my radar i need to give it a listen they do the kind of investigative stuff that we do uh in texas okay and then finally i was going to mention trace evidence a show put on by a good friend of ours steven trace evidence and i've heard of trace evidence too tell me what that's about he does a one case per episode format he started his podcast because he was really interested in talking more about the basic theories that come up in Mm -hmm. every case and he felt like 
he loved podcasts, but nobody really got as deeply into the theories as he hoped they would. So he started a podcast. It's doing really well. I like theories too. Yeah, that me too. Good. And Brooke has been suddenly listening to a lot. Do you have any you want to mention? <laughs> yeah. Um, recently, I've been listening to Uncover. Yes. Um, the Canadian broadcast company mm-hmm. put that out. I've um, had Josh Block on now, and I just had Josh Block oh, wow. on to do oh, a little cool. piece for my Patreon to update what's going on with the trial. Awesome. That's yeah. great. Another nice Canadian. <laughs> yes. There's a yeah. lot of them. And you also, you <laughs> also so many. <laughs> You liked uh, Root of Evil a lot, I too, did. right? As a therapist, I think she loved that one. What? Yeah. How could you even unpack all that? That was the craziest I thing. I know. Okay, what else, Brooke? That I'm sorry I cut you off. Oh, well, I think Laura covered most of the ones. Um, Root of Evil is her, like, number one, I think, <laughs> of all time right now. She just was fascinated. She binged it all in one day while doing chores. Yes. I would like somebody <laughs> to do a podcast about that podcast. I would like it to include. I would like it to include a family tree drawn out, so that mm-hmm. I could really figure out because there's so many people with the same names, and then yes. so much horrible things happening in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I might have to listen to it again just because I felt like, wait, what? And I kept rewinding it. You know. Yeah. Well, listen. I want to thank you so much. So tell my listeners where they can find out more about y'all and also the fall line. Okay, great. Our website is thefalllinepodcast.com. On social media, we're at Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook as The Fall Line Podcast. You can also get to us and other information about us from our network's main page, which is Exactly Right Media. Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you for joining me today. And for my listeners, please remember, if you can, to be nice and leave me a five-star review. Follow me on social media at Pain in the Pod. And there will be more extra content with these ladies on my Patreon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.